Exodus 12, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass over the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord. Well, we're in a series on the book of Exodus. Um, if you uh, are looking for answers to the biggest questions of life, Exodus is probably one of the best books that you can look at uh, because it gives us answers to some of the most foundational questions of our existence, questions like, who is God? Uh, what is God like? How do you connect to God? Foundational questions. Exodus gives us answers to those questions. Now, in our culture, one of the biggest questions that we ask is this. We ask, aren't all religions basically the same? And therefore, when it comes to spirituality, isn't the most important thing that we all find something that works for us and helps us to become a better person? That's probably one of the, the biggest questions that we ask in our culture right now. Um, in fact, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, if there's one thing that defines our modern approach to spirituality, it's the demand for options. Uh, we say there are multiple ways to define God, multiple ways to seek God, and the most important thing, therefore, is that we find something that works for us and helps us to become a better person. Now, do you realize that is a huge statement? And it's because there's an assumption buried in the heart of that statement. Can we um, bring that statement or that assumption up to the surface and just name it? The assumption is that if there is a God, 
then the way to be rightly connected to God, uh, the most important thing and the truly decisive thing is to be a good person. That is one of the deepest impulses in the human heart. We say, if you really want to connect to God, the most important thing, the thing that really makes the difference is by being a good person. That is one of the deepest impulses in the human heart. And at a certain level, that really makes sense because morality is hardwired into us as human beings. You know, we all know that we're supposed to be good people. Um, that if we really want to connect to God, then the most important thing is that we're going to have to be good people. So in this passage, um, we're asking the question, what does it really mean to connect to God? How is this God different from every other God? How is this religion different from every other religion? It's really interesting because the Bible affirms our impulse that if we really want to be connected to God, that it's important to be a good person. But the Bible also says that's not the most important thing. It says that at the center of what it means to have faith in this God is something else. Are all religions basically the same? Our culture says yes, but the Bible in this passage in particular says no. If you were with us last week, um, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he asks this great question. It's a very postmodern question. He asks, who is the Lord that I should obey him? In essence, he's saying, hey, you know, we've all got our own gods. What makes your God so unique? Why should I believe in your God? This passage that we just read is the answer. It's the answer to Pharaoh's question. Are all religions basically the same? What makes this God so unique? What makes this God so different from all the other gods? This passage says it's not about being a good person. It's about the lamb. If you really want to understand what makes this God so unique... What makes this God so different from all the other gods, all the other religions, and all the other approaches to life out there? You have to understand the Lamb. What does that mean? Let's see two big things this morning about the Lamb. We're going to see the problem of the Lamb and the revelation of the Lamb. Okay? The problem and the revelation of the Lamb. First, the problem of the Lamb. Let's recap the story just a bit, okay? Um, the children of Israel are slaves in Egypt. They're being oppressed by the Egyptians. And so God sends Moses to Pharaoh to say, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Pharaoh doesn't want to do it. So God sends a series of plagues on Egypt in order to get them, to persuade them, to let the Israelites go. But with every single one of the plagues, Pharaoh just hardens his heart more and more. He won't let them go. So this plague that we just read, this is the last one. This is the one that does the trick. This is the one that's going to make Pharaoh let them go. And um, it's, it's really a terrifying plague. Because what God does is he says, I'm going to send the destroyer down on Egypt. And he's going to kill all the firstborn sons. From the firstborn son of Egypt, uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all the way down to the firstborn son of the lowliest servant in the land. All of the firstborn sons are going to die. But, interestingly, he also says to Israel, Israel, I want you to take a lamb, slaughter it, eat it, and then take its blood and smear that blood on the doorpost of your house. And if you do that and stay in your house, then you'll be safe from the destroyer. The destroyer will not strike you down. That's the story. It's a, it's a powerful story. It's also a deeply troubling story. 
Because this is not just a story about Israel. From here on out, the rest of the Bible holds the Passover story up as the event, the paradigm for what it means to be saved, which means we've got some problems. And one of them is this. It's the idea that it's possible for one person, in this case the firstborn son, that it's possible for one person to bear the the guilt for a whole community. That's a real problem for us. In fact, it it not only is offensive, it's just kind of weird and kind of alien to us. Essentially what God is saying is that instead of making Egypt bear their moral responsibility for the oppression of Israel, he's just going to make one representative from each family pay the penalty for the oppression of uh, Israel. Now that's hard for us. Um, The idea that God would make one person pay for the sins of others, to us that just feels barbaric and unjust. But if that's you, um, I want to invite you to suspend uh, judgment for just a moment and consider the possibility that one of the big reasons this offends us so much is because we live in what is without a doubt uh, the most radically individualistic culture in the history of the world. So for instance, um, all ancient cultures, and by the way, most non-Western modern cultures, Uh, Those cultures are nowhere near as individualistic as we are. So, for instance, uh, in those cultures, your uh, identity, your goals, your dreams, your hopes and aspirations, they were not tied to your individual success. They were tied to the success of your family. That is a completely foreign idea for those of us who've grown up in Western culture. Or, for instance, in uh, in those cultures... Um, If one member of the community or one member of the family did something wicked or shameful, the shame and the guilt attached to the whole family. In fact, the family, the whole family was held responsible for the guilt of that one person. And again, that feels just totally foreign to those of us who've grown up in such an individualistic culture. Now, please understand something. I'm not saying, and the Bible is certainly not saying, that uh, individuals are unimportant. In fact, uh, the reason that our culture puts so much emphasis on the value and the worth and the dignity of every individual is a direct result of Christianity's influence on our culture. And there are lots of historians and philosophers who point this out, and I quote them on this about every other week, so I'm not going to do that this week. But, but the Bible itself affirms the dignity of every individual. However, in our culture, what we've done is we've made an absolute out of the individual. The radical freedom of every individual to discover and express their authentic self. That now is the value that is held uh, over and above all the other values and almost to the exclusion of every and any other value in our society. We've made an absolute of the individual. That, Friends, that is not honoring the individual. That is worshiping the individual. So, of course, it's no surprise that we would be offended by any view of the world that says not only is it possible for a whole community to share in the guilt of one person, but that that person could actually bear the guilt for the whole community. It's no surprise that we would be offended by that. So, um, of course, you know, that's what's going on in this passage. God is holding Egypt responsible for the oppression of all of Israel. He's saying all of Egypt is guilty for this. If you want, by the way, a modern example of this, you could just look at Germany from World War II. You know, there were lots of German villagers who knew exactly what was happening in the death camps. 
And we rightly, we hold all of them morally responsible for what was going on, even though those villagers weren't necessarily the soldiers that were leading Jewish people into the gas chambers. We know they all share a responsibility in this. In this passage, God is saying the whole nation of Egypt is responsible, morally responsible for the oppression of Egypt. But instead of making the whole nation pay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one representative from each family and I'm going to make that representative pay. It's the principle of substitution. It's the principle of substitution. In other words, the firstborn son is a substitute for the whole family. And and I understand, as weird and as alien as that may feel to us, we actually experience this principle of substitution almost every day. So, for instance, I don't know if any of you are going to sit down this afternoon to watch a sporting event. Um, I don't even know if there are any sporting events happening this afternoon. <laughs> it's not really my thing, but... But if it's your thing, and I, I'm sure it probably is a lot of your thing, it, you, whenever the day may be, um, you're going to sit down on your couch and you're going to grab your popcorn and your nachos or your crabby rolls, whatever it is you like to eat. And, and what happens if your favorite team um, hits the winning run or scores the winning touchdown? You leap up off your couch, you spill your popcorn and your nachos all over the floor, and you yell for joy. But what do you yell? You do not say, yippee, they did it. No, 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 no. You say, we did it. <laughs> What's going on? It's the principle of substitution. We identify with that team so much that their victory is our victory or their defeat is our defeat. It's the principle of substitution. In fact, you see this in other areas of our life. For instance, when we identify with certain celebrities or when we identify with certain politicians, or, for instance, it's why we love to watch royal weddings. It's because at that moment, we, our identity is so caught up into the identity of that representative, that substitute, that at that moment, everything they're experiencing is our experience. It's the principle of substitution. So, so if you take offense at this idea that God could make one representative from the family pay for the guilt of the whole community, then I want you to please consider first that that is a, a huge reflection of the individualistic culture that we live in, but also that we all experience this principle of substitution on a daily basis in many areas of our lives. So why not spiritually? Why not morally? That's the first problem of the Lamb. But there's another even bigger problem in this passage, and it's this. If you read through the plagues, um, if you were here last week, one of the things you see is that each one of these plagues, God makes um, a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So that the effects of each plague, it, it only affects Egypt and, and not Israel. So for instance, you know, maybe God sends flies or he sends darkness. In each one of those cases, the flies or the darkness, they only impact Egypt. They never impact Israel. Israel is always safe. Like God can make this distinction between the two of them, except for this plague. Because what is this plague? This is judgment day. In effect, what God is doing when he sends the destroyer down on Egypt, what he's doing is he's giving Egypt a preview of that great final ultimate judgment day that one day is going to come down on the whole earth. He's giving Egypt a preview of that day. This is judgment day. That's what this plague is because it's not a destroyer. It says it's the destroyer. God is sending judgment down. That's what this plague is. 
But it's really interesting, when this plague comes down, when this judgment comes down, God actually has to give instructions to the Israelites on how to protect themselves. He says, you have to take a lamb, slaughter it, smear the blood on your house. Unless you smear the blood on your doorpost, you can't be saved. The destroyer will get in and, and will destroy you too. Do you realize what God is saying here? I mean, think about this. It's one thing for God to say to Egypt, okay, Egypt, you're all guilty. And therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to take one representative from each of your families, and I'm going to make that representative pay the penalty for what happened. You know, at least there's, there's some kind of moral logic there because we say, Egypt, yes, Egypt, they're the bad guys. They're the oppressors here. But it is another thing altogether for God to say to Israel, Israel, yes, you're the oppressed ones here, and Egypt is the oppressor. And yes, I'm about to deliver you out of slavery. Yes, I'm about to save you. But there is a greater deliverance that you need. There is a greater salvation that you need. Because when it comes to ultimate guilt and ultimate judgment, I can't make a distinction between you and Egypt. You're all equally guilty before me. What? How can God possibly say this? Well, Remember what we just said a little bit ago. There is a powerful impulse in every human being, one of the most powerful impulses in our lives, that in order to be rightly related to God, we just instinctively know that you have to be a good person. That's one of the most powerful impulses in our lives. But there is another equally powerful impulse in every single one of us that stands in tension with that first impulse. There's another equally powerful impulse in every single one of us that says evil demands justice. Evil demands punishment. In fact, we, we feel this so strongly that if we see an evildoer go free or get off without punishment, everything within us cries out for justice. We are outraged by that. We, we are so outraged at evil that, that for evil to go unpunished, that is the ultimate outrage. So here's the question. Here's the problem. How do we reconcile those two impulses? You know how we do it? What we do is we divide the world into good people and bad people, and then guess who goes in that first category? We do. That's what we instinctively do. And listen, I think at a certain level that makes a lot of sense because, you know, we have this moral paradigm for the world, what we instinctively do is we divide the world into good people and bad people, and we put ourselves in the first category. In this passage, God is saying to the Israelites, and he's saying to you and to me also, he's saying everyone's in the second category. God is saying, you're all guilty before me. He's saying that, yes, you're right in your intuition that in order to be rightly related to me, you have to be a good person. The problem is none of you are. We instinctively divide the world into good people and bad people, and then we automatically put ourselves in the good category. Friends, you know what we're doing when we do that? Think about this. What, what does Passover mean? Passover, when God passed over Israel, he was refusing to judge Israel for the sin and the evil in their own lives. When we look around at the world and when we divide the world into good people and bad people and then we put ourselves in the good category, you know what we're doing? We're passing over ourselves. I don't know if there's anything more spiritually dangerous than that. That, 
if we insist on looking out and seeing the real problems in the world as being located in those evil people out there without first looking at our own lives, ironically and tragically, what we're doing is we're actually perpetuating the very evil that we seek to condemn because we all have the same capacity for evil. That's what this passage is saying. We all have the same capacity for evil in our lives. No one, and listen, I know that is probably the most offensive thing I could possibly say, but no one has ever described this better than Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian writer who was unjustly arrested um, during the communist regime and imprisoned in a brutal forced labor camp called the Gulag. Just the name sounds awful. The reality was far worse. The Gulag was a system of, of incredibly brutal forced labor camps, one of the most brutal prison systems that human beings have ever devised. When Solzhenitsyn was there, he was oppressed. He was victimized. And yet, when he wrote his famous book about it, The Gulag Archipelago, he said this amazing statement in the book. Here's what he wrote about this. He said, Let the reader who expects this book to be a political expose slam the cover shut right now. If only it were all so simple. If only it were possible to, uh, to uh, locate all the evil in the world. If only it were, there were evil people somewhere committing evil deeds and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But confronted by the pit into which we are about to cast those who would do us harm, we halt stricken dumb. It is, after all, only because of the way things worked out that they were the executioners and not us. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Do you hear what he's saying? Solzhenitsyn is saying that you know, our impulse is to judge evil. Our impulse is to, is to want to dig a pit and cast all the executioners into the pit. Solzhenitsyn is saying, we're all the executioners. We're all deserving to be thrown into the pit. He's saying, you can't condemn evil without condemning yourself. It always boomerangs back on you. The line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. We're all guilty. We all have the same capacity for evil. That's what he's saying. Which means here's the real problem. The real problem is that when God comes down to judge evil in the world, how is God supposed to judge evil without judging us? How is God supposed to condemn evil without condemning us? And that leads to our last point. We've just seen the problem of the lamb, but, but lastly, we have to see the revelation of the lamb. Because how is God supposed to judge evil without judging us? The only way is if we have a substitute. Someone or something who can actually bear the judgment for us. It's very interesting. You know, both Egypt and Israel needed a substitute in this passage. A little later on, uh, it tells us that when the destroyer came down on Egypt, there was not a house in which someone was not dead. So, so either there was a dead son or there was a dead lamb. But either way, all of them needed a substitute. Because guess what? Justice cannot just disappear into thin air. You know, I know it's very common in our culture to say things like, look, I can't believe in a God of judgment. I can't believe in a God of wrath. I just believe in a God of love. Very common for us to say something like that. But listen, how loving would it be for God to say to Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, I know that, you know, you've been oppressing Israel for all these years and you really shouldn't have done that. But you know what? I'm a God of love. So, hey, it's cool. We're good. Oh, sorry, Israel. You know, my hands are tied. I'm a God of love. Is there anybody in this room that would be okay with that? 
The irony of that is that if you have a God who does that, that's a less loving God, and we all know that's true, which means we all need a substitute. They needed it. We need it. Where are we going to find it? Before he began his public ministry, Jesus Christ um, had a cousin, a prophet named John the Baptist, and John the Baptist began going out into the countryside, and he began telling people, the Savior of the world is coming. Get ready. The Savior is coming. And then one day, John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ walking by, and John the Baptist said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saying, Jesus is the true Lamb that we all need. Because here's the question. If we all need a substitute, if we all need someone or something to bear the guilt for us, how in the world can a fluffy little lamb take away the sins of the world? The answer is, it can't. We need something or someone more than a lamb, more than that, to bear the guilt for us. I mean, look at Israel. You know, God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, but, but we'll find out as we go through the rest of the book that they brought their sin with them. And we're going to find that out big time as we go throughout the rest of the book. Israel brings their sin with them out of economic slavery, which means that there's a greater deliverance that they need. There's a greater salvation that they need. And that as wonderful and as important as that lamb was, there's a greater lamb that they need. And we need it too. Who is it? It's Jesus. He's the true lamb of God. He's the lamb that we all need. And on the night before he died, very interesting, you know, throughout his whole ministry, Jesus kind of, he kind of held his hard cards close to his chest and, and, and was kind of hinting at who he was and what he came to do. But on the night before he died, he made a full disclosure, a full revelation of who he was and what he came to do. He, he revealed himself to his disciples. But what was the night he chose to do it? Passover. Now, in every Passover meal, there's three big things. There's the bread, there's a series of cups, and there's a lamb. And on this Passover night, normally on Passover, um, they would take the bread and they would say, this bread is the bread of our affliction. We were slaves in Egypt, our, the bread of our affliction. On this Passover night, Jesus took the bread, but instead of saying that, he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. This bread is the bread of my affliction on the cross. And then after that, he took the cup. But this time, Jesus took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood, which is poured out for you. Unless you take shelter on, under my blood, none of you can really be saved. I mean, here's the really strange thing about what happened that night. You've got the bread, check. You've got the cup, check. But where's the lamb? All of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life mention this. You had the bread, you had the cup, but there was no lamb at that meal. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the Lamb. How much more clearly do you think Jesus could be telling us, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Because listen, we're right in our intuition that in order to be rightly related to God, it's important, it's crucial, it's essential to be a good person. Friends, there is only one person in the history of the world who's ever lived who rightly belongs in that category. Jesus Christ is the ultimate manifestation of all the goodness and all the glory of God in human flesh. Because Jesus Christ is the only truly good one. He's the only truly innocent one. He's the only one who truly deserves all the love and the acceptance and the approval of God. And yet on the cross, Jesus Christ, all of the judgment of God came down on Jesus 
the true justice, the full justice, the full wrath, the full condemnation that we cry out for. We know evil must be judged. We cry out for it. All of it came down on Jesus because on the cross, God did not pass over Jesus so that he could pass over us. He is the Lamb of God. And if he is the true Lamb of God, and he is, what does that mean for our lives, practically speaking? Well, far more than we can possibly talk about in the remaining minutes. But let me offer you just a couple of thoughts by way of application. If Jesus truly is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, then, then first thing this means for our lives is we have to eat the meal. What does that mean? And in verses 7 through 11, it's really interesting. God keeps giving the Israelites a lot of instructions on how to eat the meal. But the point he makes over and over and over again is you have to eat this meal. In other words, God is saying, do you know you need it? Unless you actually eat the meal, you can't be saved. In other words, eating the meal is a way of saying, I know that I need this. I know that I have to have this in my life, and I'm giving myself to it. I'm taking it into my life. For instance, imagine that you were dying of starvation, and you saw a lavish banquet laid out on a table in front of you. You could look at that meal sitting on the table and you could say, I know that if I eat that meal, then it's going to save my life. But unless you actually go over and pull up to the table and put the food in your mouth, you're going to die. When we eat, to eat the meal is to say, I need this. I, I will die without this. To eat the meal essentially is to say two things. First, it's to say, I need shelter. I need cover. I, you know... I, I can't say that, um, you know, nobody's perfect. I know I'm not a perfect person, but I know in my heart of hearts that I'm basically a good person. We love to say that, but you're passing over yourself if you say that. To eat the meal is first to say, I need this. If the judgment, if the full justice of God were to come down on earth right now, I couldn't stand before God, not in my own goodness. To eat the meal first is to say, I need shelter. But secondly, it's to say, Jesus is the shelter I need. Jesus is the cover I need because Jesus is the true lamb. And he's the only place that I can find the cover that I need. You have to actually take it and put it in your mouth and eat it. Take it into your life. Take it to yourself. It's a way of saying, I need it. And Jesus is the provision for it. But secondly, not only do we eat the meal, the second way that this impacts our lives is you get a new foundation. If Jesus is the true lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, what that means is you get a new foundation, a new beginning. What do I mean? In verse 2, God says to the Israelites, he says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. It's really interesting. God's, he's shuffling their calendar around. He's saying, you've got a whole new calendar. You've got a whole new beginning. Essentially, what he's saying is you have a new foundation now. Now you have a new center in your life. What does that mean? Let me put it to you like this. Um, every human being in this room, essentially your life is like its own little mini solar system. That means that you've got all kinds of things in your life that are really important to you. Things like um, your family, your home, your relationships, your children, your friends, your spouse, um, your job, uh, your community, your reputation, your achievements. Each one of those things that's important to you, it's, it's like a planet. And, and it's all part of the solar system, and they're all revolving, but, but at the center of your life, there's a sun. At the center of your life, there's a center of gravity. 
and everything else in your life revolves around that. They may be further away or closer to the sun, depending on how important they are, but something is at the center of your life. Something is your center of gravity. And whatever that thing is, it orders and, and orients everything else in your life around it. It holds everything in place and orders everything around you. So for instance, if, if you have a friend and, uh, and you discover that that friend of yours voted for a candidate that you absolutely abhor, and then you decide because they did that, I can't be in relationship with that person anymore. You know what that means? It means that the center of your gravity, the center of your life is your political commitments. That's how you know that you're a good person. And, and if you meet somebody that doesn't share the same center of gravity with you, then you can't be in relationship with that person anymore. Friends, listen, let me show you how radical the gospel is. Every other religion, every other approach to life except Christianity essentially says that the center of gravity in your life, the foundation of your life, essentially is, is your own goodness, some commitment, some value, some possession, some, something in your life that you can look to, that you can point, and you can say, that's how I know that I'm a good person. That's how I know that I'm okay. The gospel is the only thing that now puts something else at the center of your life that's not about your goodness. It's the God of the universe dying on a cross for you. Do you know what that does to your life? Do you realize how that would reorder and reorient everything else in your life so that instead of looking at all these other people in the world and saying, those evil people out there, do you know what that does for you? If the lamb becomes the center of your life, your new foundation, your new beginning, First, that should make you an incredibly humble person. Not in a you know, smarmy, self-loathing kind of way, but in a way that, that looks around at the world, looks at all the evil in the world and says, you know what, I am just as capable of evil as all these people out there. It means that you would never look at other people and think of yourself as better than them. You would always look at them and say, I'm no better. That no matter how bad these people may be, no matter how wicked or awful they may be, I can't look at them and think that I'm a better person than them because I know that I am just as uh, capable of evil as they are. It should make you an incredibly humble person. But secondly, if the lamb becomes the center, the new beginning, the foundation of your life, what that also does is that that makes you an incredibly bold person. That gives you a confidence and an assurance that nothing can shake. So that if people criticize you, people trash talk you, if, if you lose something like your job or a relationship or your health, if your life falls apart, you won't fall apart. Why? Because when you look at the lamb in the center of your life, if that's the center of gravity in your life, the thing that defines you, you look at that and you say, there's a God of the universe who created all things and he loves me. He loves me and nothing I do can, can change that. Because it's not based on me or what I do. It's based on Jesus and what he has done. It's not based on my goodness. It's based on the goodness of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is an unshakable foundation. That means that you can move out in the world both incredibly humble but also incredibly bold. It, it both humbles you to the ground but lifts you up to the heavens. What a foundation. What a beginning. And the only way you can get it is if you eat the meal and if you make Jesus the new center, the new foundation, the new beginning of your life. Friends, is he the center? Do you know this morning that you need shelter? And are you finding that shelter in Jesus? And if you are finding that shelter in Jesus, is he the center of gravity in your life? Is he the thing around which everything else in your life revolves? 
Is he the, the center that reorders and reorients everything else in your life? The more you behold him, the more you make him the center of your life, the more he'll do that. Let's pray.